here put in a lot of work to accomplish a degree, a relationship, a promotion, a buying a new house, a marriage, an engagement. And that moment finally comes, and a lot of people, when they're in that moment and in that space, the only thing that they're looking at are kind of the, the nicks on the box. They're, they're looking at the scratches, they're looking at the things that didn't work out, that didn't kind of match up to all of their dreams and aspirations. Because the longer you work for something, by definition, the more time you have to imagine what it's actually going to feel like. The more time you have to think about that moment when it finally comes, how wonderful, how rich, how enjoyable is that going to be when I finally get the promotion, graduate, get the job, find the spouse, have a child. And you're in these situations that you're looking forward to it for so many years, for, so, for such a long time, and when it finally comes, you're, you're afraid to articulate it because you're gonna look like you are frustrated, you're gonna look like you are kind of denying all the good in your life. But inevitably, anybody who's gone through that process, and I assume that everybody here has a process in the works and has completed some of these in their own life. Where you've worked for something for a long time and the moment finally comes, I know on NCSY we put in a lot of blindfold kids the first time they're going to see the hotel, and a lot of kids like everybody takes out their camera, make sure that to catch the tears, make sure to catch the emotion, and that that moment finally comes. And for a lot of people, it can feel anticlimactic. So in a way, tonight is a case study in my own failure and my own negotiation to how am I going to approach and embrace my own dreams. Because I've been working on this for a long time. And I started this book, we'll talk about it, really five years ago. It was the real, real, real beginning. And over the course of five years, it's so easy, it's so easy to have that joy and the imagination of what it's gonna feel like and what it's gonna look like. And then you're finally there, and it's easy to concentrate on all the wrong things. And I think the most important takeaway from an event tonight about a book that's talking about failure is the negotiation between the present moment and the reality that you're in and all of the aspirations and ambitions and ambition that led up to it. And if I were to give you a piece of advice that has worked for me, that I have, has been the center of my focus, and I've said this many, many times, is that any event that you lead up to needs to be concretized. When we had the base Hamikdash, so you needed Shemen Hamishka, you needed special oil that you would put on top of the Kalim, the vessels of the base Hamikdash, and that oil is what people use to concretize those vessels for the service of the base Hamikdash. And my question is what is the Shemen Hamishka of a personal accomplishment? What is the Shemen Hamishka of something that you have worked on? for so much of your own life, whether it's a book, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, what concretizes those moments? And for me, what has worked is that the Shevet HaMishka of personal accomplishment is appreciation, is hodah, is looking around at that, those moments and allowing yourself to stop, and instead of turning inward and looking at your own accomplishment, moving outwards and looking at the people who have supported you and who are around you to get to that accomplishment. 
So when you turn inwards in these moments, very often, the only thing you see is those aspirations and how those aspirations overlay on top of the reality that you're in. You remember all of the dreams of what it would feel like. You thought that, wow, I, I wasn't sure. Was it going to be a book launch or I was going to be accepting a Pulitzer Prize? I wasn't sure. And, and like, you kind of like had some doubts about it. Was, was the wedding going to be everything that it was cracked up to be? Was it going to be as many guests? Were people going to be talking about it the way they were? So when you turn inwards, that's where all of your ambition and aspiration lies. And when you turn outwards, you see people who have supported you. You see institutions that have supported you. You see family that has supported you. So first and foremost, we really need to take out the Shevet HaMishchav tonight, which is the appreciation. First and foremost, to everybody who came out tonight uh, to support the product, to support the book, to support myself, to all to all the NCSY advisors who came to this event, to NCSY, of course, is the institution that has helped me and allowed me to, to work on this project when, uh, when I'm on my laptop in my office and then the door is shut and they're not sure exactly what I'm working on. I have 11 books open up in front of me, all from like, you know, Oxford University Press. They never asked because they were, they were decent to me. They were decent to me. They, 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 knew, they knew better. They let me work on this and they supported me throughout. And really to everybody here, the family, the friends, in particular, I could kind of focus on one person, Deborah Schwartzman, who organizes these events. We give her a round of applause to support both myself and the institution. It means a great deal. And I want to talk about how this book came about, what is it about, and a little bit about three lessons that I took away about how we deal with sin and failure in Jewish thought. So the analogy I gave when I spoke to my class last night was when Emperor Constantine was going out to battle, he converted to Christianity, which seems like an apt analogy to talk about when we're talking about sin and failure. So when he apostatized, he wasn't always Christian. He was going out to battle and he said he saw a huge cloud and in that cloud he saw a cross. And that's how he knew right away that he was going to convert to a different religion. He wasn't Jewish, but he wasn't Christian either. And he decided to be Christian. Now, I had my own Constantine moment. I had a moment in my own life where I realized exactly what the name of the book was going to be and what the cover was going to be. I was sitting in somebody's house during Shalashudas. During the break time, it was like after, it was like one of those very long meals that like we didn't come for Shalashudas, we came for the lunch, but everybody was too embarrassed to leave. They gave us one of those like token, like everyone is free to leave, but like nobody got up, and I wasn't allowed to be the first one to get up because my wife kicked me underneath the table and said, don't get up. So I stayed exactly, exactly where I was. And I was looking around, like what do they have to read? That's what I do, I snoop around. Instead of looking at their bank statements, which I told this frowned upon, I go and I look at like, what, what, what's on your shelf? Like, what, what's going on? I saw on the coffee table, on the coffee table in this person's house was a book. It was a book by an Israeli photographer, an Israeli, a secular Israeli photographer, named Menachem Kahana, before we get like comments. Menachem Kahana, no relationship to uh, anybody else, spells the name differently. Menachem Kahana is a brilliant AP photographer. He, he, he shoots photographs for the Associated Press. That's like the Kodesh Kedushim Lahavzil of photography. 
And he came out with a book, and the book is called Haredin, but spelled with an H. Haredin. And I was like, wow, like what is this about? And it was this secular photographer who went out and photographed the Israeli Haredi community, just doing, doing their day, doing their day to day. There's an amazing picture where he photographs students at a, at a Purim Sa'uda, passed out. He has an amazing photograph of people going to Uman, he traveled to Uman with them. It's an amazing, amazing book. If you look now and you take out your phones and go on Amazon, you can get on Amazon for $400. That's what I found, so I realized how, well, I'd have to look at the bank statements. They're very wealthy, bought a $400 book on photography. God bless them. So I was going through the book and I was looking at the, at the pictures and I found one picture that my heart sank into my stomach. It's this picture over here, which is the cover to the book. And it was a picture that's taken behind the Belzer Rebbe. And I want to tell you why this picture is, I think, the most important source, the most important maramakom, so to speak, in the entire book. And that's because I think this is the picture of everybody's experience in a Jewish community. Everybody in their own lives has an experience with a Rebbe, with a leader, it could be your teacher from seminary, it could be the rabbi of your local shul, it can be a counselor or a mentor who everybody looks up to. And there's that person who you aspire to make a connection with, you aspire to become. And right next to that person, there's always a shamus, there's always a number two. That's the number two who like has like a lot of keys. Little, little Haredi children don't want to grow up to be the Rebbe. They won't grow up to be the shamans. They want to be the number two. He's the one who has the, the, the keys to all the doors. That's the one who gets to go to the advisor meeting that nobody else is in. That's the one who gets to talk to the person organizing the event. Those are the people in the scorum sale room who look very busy and have walkie-talkies with nobody on the other end. So those, those are the people who, like, they're involved in intimately in establishing the seniority, the vision of that leader. And then on the tables, all the way down, are the followers. The followers are the campers, the followers are the employees, the followers are the students. The followers are all those people, are all those people who decide to be a part of this community that's led by this leader, who could be a teacher, and you have the TA, it could be the director of the camp, and the senior staff. And then there's everybody who's participating. But what drew me in so much to this picture was that little boy. Was that little boy hiding underneath the table that the first time I saw this picture, I didn't even notice him. That little boy who has like a look so forlorn, so uninvited, he's listening intently but he's not big enough, he's not grown up enough to sit at the table with the real people, with the grown-ups. And I think everybody here has had an experience where they have felt that they are not at the table. Because there are ultimately four categories in the Jewish community. There are leaders, there's their number two, the senior staff, there are all the followers, and then there are the people who don't really totally feel like they are a part of it. They're the people who don't totally connect to the experience itself. 
They're in the room, but they're not at the table. They're in the camp, they're in the classroom, but they're not a part of the friendship circle. They're not a part of the closeness and the culture. It's lost on them. And I think a lot of people here have that. Anybody who's ever been to a wedding that they don't want to be at is that child. You have the chassan and kala, you have all the people, the family, the bridesmaids, everybody who's invited. And then there's you. You're at the wedding, you're there, you showed up on time. I don't want to be here. Get me out of here. I don't feel connected. Our friendship has suffered in the process. I don't feel that happy for you. I have to be here. You're in the room, but you're not completely at the table. I saw this picture and I realized that this is what I wanted to write a book about. And I realized really pretty soon thereafter that I wanted to call the book Synagogue. So why did I call the book Synagogue? You should know when I showed the book Synagogue to most of my mentors, they said it was a really bad idea to call the book this because it's silly. It's silly, it's, it's frivolous. You're gonna start associating a synagogue where we go to shul with synagogue, with sin. But I did it very deliberately because like the word demagogue and pedagogue, the suffix agog actually means something. It means to lead and it means to grow. who's leading students and children. A synagogue is supposed to provide leadership and growth even in the face of failure. And I want you to know that in my own life, and I mean this not 10 years ago, not five years ago, but like right now, there are parts of me that still feel like that, like that child. There are parts of me that still feel like I'm in the room, but I'm not totally at the table. And I'm at events and I'm at gatherings where I, I will, get me out of here, get me out of here. This is, this is not for me. And I wanted to write something that shares a little bit of the thought and the law and the theology behind the experience of being in the room and not at the table. Five years ago, almost to the day, this is next week, this is this coming Monday, I tweeted something. I tweeted something, I'm sitting in my apartment on Cabrini, I'm sitting on my mattress, that was on the floor, just to kind of describe what my life was like at that point in time. So it was a mattress, mattress was on the floor. The room, which compared to the last apartment I was at, was, was like a mansion. It was very, very impressive, but, but, my, but my room was really the, the belly of a lot of uh, personal turmoil and, and dysfunction. And dysfunction, you, there were empty, full containers of deli packets. And, and you'd ask yourself, if you're only eating a little bit of deli in one night, then, then why do you have full containers there? They need to be refrigerated. No, 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 you're, you're making a big mistake. I was making myself triple-decker deli sandwiches at one o'clock in the morning and stacking them and cutting them down the middle and eating myself until I fell asleep from the carbohydrates and meat, uh, almost on a, on a daily basis. It was, it was a really special time in my life. I, uh, those sandwiches got me through a lot. Really, if you ever need like to fall asleep, get those big empire uh, plastic deli packets. Those are, that's one sitting. That's one sitting, three sandwiches, slice it right down the middle. 
I realize that if you go into a Svarim store, if you go to the Svarim sale, you go to the Halacha section, so the Halacha section has a safer called Shmir Shabbos Kehilkasa, how to keep Shabbos, called Tefillah Kehilkasa, how to daven. There's a safer now called Tishabov Shacholios Peshabbos Kehilkasa, how do you keep Tishabov when it falls out on Shabbos? There is a safer for every element and every aspect of Halacha. And what I was looking for was a book. Do we have a safer that allows us of how, how do you do Averas? What role do Averas play in our life? What happens when you're already sinning? What happens when you've already made a mistake? And the reason why I think people are so uncomfortable to talk about this is because the strategy that everybody in this room has is avoid them. It would be a one-page book. Page one, avoid them, and the rest would be blank pages. Don't sin, don't fail. But the problem is, the problem is, without exception, and this is a, a Pasuk, in Sadiq Ba'art, nobody avoids sin completely. So who's talking about the experience itself? Who's talking about the moments of failure to help us navigate through them? Who's teaching us how to add the suffix agav to our moments of failure? And I decided that I want to be the person. I'm never going to be known for my tzidkus. I made a brief push to be known for my Torah scholarship. Totally belly flopped into that pool, did not work out. I wanted to be known for something. I wanted to contribute something to the world that I realized that in my own life, thank God, I was so in touch with very obvious failures, very obvious disappointments in my own life. Things that I thought would go one way and they went another way. Things that I wanted to go sequentially in one direction and they went in a different direction. That I realized that maybe I'm qualified to write a book about failure. So the first thing I did is I wrote a little Hebrew volume, and it was a Hebrew volume based on a pasuk that uh, really a, a series of, of two phrases that are juxtaposed in Tachanum. I love Tachanum. Um, I'm like the one Jew. I'm not, I don't get excited when there's like a bris or something happening in Shul where you don't say Tachanum. I love Tachanum. I think it's the most beautiful prayer. If I had to choose one prayer, I would probably just go Tachanum. Like, if I had to choose, like, you only have time for one thing, like, the Mechilos Kavod, the third Hallelujah, like, I would go, I would go for Tachanun. That's where I would go. And the reason why I love Tachanun is because there's this phrase that I have been connected to, to her for a very long time. They're juxtaposed. One's a Pusik from Chabakuk, and one's a Pusik from Tehillim. And the juxtaposed right next to each other. They're not really next to each other, but they're next to each other in Tachanun. And one Pusik says, Barok is Rachem Tizkar. In your anger, God, please remember me. And right next to it, they borrow a passage from Tehillim that says, Ki hu yada yitzreinu. Because he knows what our yetzer, he knows what our thoughts and desires are. And it's so interesting that they're juxtaposed in davening like that, because they're not really next to each other. But I've always looked at it as a mantra of sorts, where we cry out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Berogi Yisrachem Tizkor, in your anger, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I've disappointed you, I've let you down. I, I wasn't the model of perfection that I strive to be. Rachem Tizkor, remember a little bit of mercy. Why should HaKadosh Baruch Hu remember mercy? Because you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know what we're up against. You put it in us. You know how difficult it is to navigate the decisions of life. You know how difficult it is 
just live up to the perfection that we have in the Torah. You know how difficult it is. So that's why we're asking for a little Rachmanas. That's why in whatever I've done to make you angry, Rachem Tizkar, I find myself even in, in personal relationships. A little bit of Rachmanas. I know I disappointed you, but you know, you know that I'm trying. So I want to share with you three very quick lessons about sin and failure. This book was a failure. This is an actual quote from the Reader's Report when the book first came out. I sent it to, uh, to anonymous referees. One of them wrote back, at one point, Bashevkin quotes his own Twitter account, as some have added on page 130, still in there, didn't back down. The bottom line is that I'm not sure what conversation this book is a contribution to. There are many little pieces of analysis that are interesting, some insights that are worthwhile, some pieces that make one wonder what the argument is. I cannot recommend this book for publication. I got rejected. I got rejected. I, I don't know who this person is, I'm trying to figure out if he's in the room or she's in the room right now. I'm assuming not, but I, I have tried to find out. I have no idea. I've done like word searches of phraseology. I can't, I can't find out who wrote this. But, but this book was rejected, and I pushed back and I pushed hard. And you should know, the day that I got this, I, like, I, I fell apart. I got in the middle of work. I, I find that when you're having a, a pretty bad day and you get an email that's entitled Reader's Report or you know some email back from a, from a fellowship. I, I know exactly where I was standing. I know where I was standing when I was rejected multiple times from, from the same fellowship. I know where I was standing, exactly where I was standing when I got this reader's report. I was on the 14th floor, I was turning a corner, and like my heart sank to my stomach. I said, it's over, it's over. I wrote this whole book, I sent it, and one of the, one of the readers hated it. He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't wanna, he doesn't wanna recommend it for publication. And, and I, everything dropped out for me. So here are three quick lessons that I think could help you navigate a little bit of sin and failure. Lesson number one, it's not just about focusing on doing better mitzvahs. Every year, every year during Yom HaNorayim, there's like a big push, gotta daven harder, we gotta give more tzedakah, have more time for Meis and Tovim. There's always a big push to do more mitzvahs and do more things better. I want to start tonight a new push, a new campaign. We need to do, we need to do better Averas. We need to do better Averas. We need to sin better. What does that mean to sin better? What does it mean to do better Averas? The first thing is conceding the fact that sin, much of sin is inevitable. Much of sin is unavoidable. And the fact that you have something in your life it doesn't mean that you need to spend the rest of your life leaving all of it. We need to figure out a way to fall better. And people who have taken jujitsu or gymnastics, there's a way to fall down that you don't break a bone. There's a way to roll into a fall so it doesn't cripple somebody. There's a Gemara in Gittin. It is the only place in all of Talmud where a very famous line is used. The line is, a person cannot stand up with the words of Torah unless you first fall by them. And at first, and this is a line that's repeated over and over again in Sifrei Hasidus and in Sifrei Musr, 
but it's really only used once in the Shachavataria in Gemara, in the question and answer in Gemara. A person cannot stand up with Torah unless you first fall by them. And my question is, why in all of Talmud, why in all of the Gemara, is this the one place that we actually use this Gemara to talk about a Hava Amina, what we originally thought Adamaskana? And I think it's actually telling us something even more profound then you have to go through struggle in order to get up. That's not one of the lessons, because we know that intuitively and we hear that in pop culture songs. You don't need me to come in here to tell you that failure makes you better. I think we got that memo. But I want to talk a little bit more deeply and a little bit with a little bit more nuance about how to make failure make you better. And this Gemara is talking about a situation where somebody is marrying either either half of a person or marrying somebody whose only half of them is able to be married. And originally the Gemara compares the two. It says if I walk over to a woman and say, I only want to marry half of you, and if I walk over to somebody who only half of them can get married, the Gemara initially thinks it's the same thing. And then the Gemara rejects it. It says that it's not the same thing. They're two very different things. And he uses this line, Ain Torah, What's the difference? The difference, says the Gemara in the Maskana in my time, Hasam Shire Bikinyano, Hachalo Shire Bikinyano. In one case, when you go over to a woman and say, I only want to marry half of you, so you left half of her that's able to get married. You left some of your ability to acquire, some of your ability to put in effort, some of your ability to really master the situation. You left it on the table. Hassam, in the other case, when there's somebody who can only get married by half, only half of them is capable of getting married, that's different. You acquired as much as you possibly could. You put in your best effort, and everything left was out of your hands. The lesson of sin is that we only say Ain Adam is when you are not shy or you don't leave over the kinyano in what you are able to acquire. You cannot use failure as an excuse to not try. You can't say that failure is going is inevitable, so why try at all? Because in that situation, you left opportunity on the table. The key to mastering failure is to strive for perfection. The key to mastering failure is to reach out as far as you can with the knowledge that there's always going to be something that's out of your reach, but there's always going to be something that you can grasp. And hold on to what you can, and don't beat yourself up on what you cannot reach. If you're not shy of the kinyano, if you don't leave over something in your acquisition, then you're going to be able to be omed on that Divrei Torah. And I think that's an issue that a lot of people struggle with. The example I gave once when I was speaking in YU is when I was in Nir Yisroel, I prefaced it like that so I make it seem like it was a very long time ago. You'll hear that in the second half of the sentence. When I was in Nir Yisroel, I struggled with waking up for davening. I struggled with waking up for davening. I had a hard time. I missed shachars a lot in Nir Yisroel. When I say a lot, use your imagination. A lot. And what happened was, is that I was too embarrassed, I was too embarrassed 
because I insisted on perfection to let anybody know that I missed dominant. This is real. This is, this is real. I would wake up. I would maybe say brachas or something. I would go. I would start Seder because I wanted to put tefillin on in my room, but I didn't want my roommates to see me because I'd be embarrassed. They'd walk in. They'd see that I missed dominant. So I needed to find a time where nobody would see me. So I would go to Seder, and then in the middle of Seder, at like <coughs> 9.20, I would excuse myself to go to the bathroom. I would run back to my room to put on tefillin. What, what was happening there? What was the operative situation there? The situation there is that I insisted on perfection and would not take anything in its stead. And the real strategy is to embrace the fact that you didn't get all the way there, but you tried. And don't allow your own perfection to hold up this image of yourself and who you are to interfere with sincerity and kind of, this is where I am and I'm trying to do better. Lesson number two. And this is a really, uh, this is a, a part of lesson. It's a lesson that I've said, and, and it means a great deal to me. The Gemara in Baba Basra says that the most beautiful base Hamigdash, the most beautiful part of the base Hamigdash, was the ceiling. The Gemara says that Misha Rab Binyan Hordas, Lo Rab Binyan The second base Hamigdash, which was built by Hordas, if you haven't seen this building, you've never seen anything in your life. And the Gemara wants to know, like, what was so nice about it? And the Gemara says it was the tiling system. They had these blue tiles that they would kind of space with different shades of blue. So when you looked up at the ceiling, it looked like the ocean. The Gemara says the last three lines, it looked like, it looked like the ocean. Why is it that the paradigm of beauty of the Beis Habigdash, the second Beis Habigdash, was the ocean. Why is that what makes that experience that the Gemara says, And there's an explanation that's given by the Pachad Yitzchak by Rav Hutner that is so dear to my heart and so close to my heart. I really only want to share one line with you, but, but it's that powerful. In the back of Pachad Yitzchak, Purim, and we're, we're around Purim time, so it's okay to, to quote, in the back of Pachinza of Purim, there's a series of Mamara that people skip. They skip them because they're written in Yiddish. But I had a friend in there, Yisroel, who thought that I woke up, woke up for Shachas that morning, who I convinced were a Chavrusa. His name was Yitzchak Block. Yitzchak Block, I don't know why, was fluent in reading and writing Yiddish. It was like incredible. KBY uh, graduate. And I sat with him, I said, I want you to go through each of these each of these mamar with me. And Rav Hutner says something so beautiful about waves. He says, the reason why the reason why if you saw this ceiling, it was like the most beautiful ceiling you ever saw, is because every wave, so long as it's in the ocean, it knows it's going to crash. Every wave when it's in the ocean knows that from the moment it hits the shore, the power and energy of that wave is going to subside and is going to end.
the moment it hits that shore and the moment that it stops. There was something unique about the second base Hamigdash. What was unique about the second base Hamigdash is that from the moment it was built, they already knew it was going to be destroyed. From the moment it was built, they already had built the tunnels to figure out how they were going to escape and save the vessels, the kalim of the base Hamigdash. What made the second base Hamigdash unique is that its ultimate failure was built into the actual architecture of the base Hamigdash. Says Rav Hutner, what made the base Hamigdash so beautiful is that it modeled this paradigm of the waves. Is that even though it knew that it was going to be destroyed, even though it knew that this moment was not going to last, so long as they were in that moment, so long as that wave was in that sea, it was storming. As the Putner says in Yiddish, the highlighted part, over Kozman Ichtzaim by Tish, So long as you are at the table, so long as you are there, you are storming. And I think a lot of us in our religious lives, in our personal lives, in our romantic lives, and a lot of us in our professional lives realize that the commitments we've made are not going to last forever. The feelings that we have now are not going to last forever. There's going to be a time where I'm not going to be as euphoric. There's going to be a time where I'm not going to be as committed. There's going to be a time where I'm not going to be as excited. And the question is, in the ceiling of those thoughts, how are they paved? Do you allow the inevitable failure of decisions that you've made prevent you from rejoicing and enjoying those moments? Or are you a wave where so long as you are in the ocean, so long as that second base Hamidar stood, so long as you are in that space, I'm storming, I'm storming, I'm excited. So what somebody tells you, oh, it's a phase. So what somebody rolled their eyes at me, ah, oh, Shana Rishona. So what somebody rolls their eyes at me and says, oh, you're so excited about it? Okay, give it a little bit of time. So what? Right now I'm in the ocean. And right now the ceiling of my experience is paved in blue. Because even if this may not last, even if it will end in failure, I'm not going to allow that to undermine the moment that I am in right now. This is one of the most profound quotes that I've ever read on failure. And I want to read it with you tonight. I think about it a lot because, as I mentioned before, anytime you have a celebration, it's a negotiation of the aspirations you had and the ambition you had and the moment and reality that you're being confronted with. I don't know if any of you know, but there is somebody on television named Conan O'Brien. He has a show on TBS. He used to be on NBC. He took over The Tonight Show after Jay Leno. And he wanted that job. He wanted Jay Leno's job. He wanted The Tonight Show for decades. He always wanted that show. And he waited around for it, and he finally got it. After getting that job and waiting for it for months and months and months, he got canceled. The show got canceled. He got fired from his job. It was a whole thing. People got upset. And he moved to TBS. He gave the commencement speech at Dartmouth right after that experience. And he said as follows. He 
says, but then, in the second paragraph, but then something spectacular happened. Fog bound with no compass and adrift, I started trying things. I grew up cinnamon beard, I dove into the world of social media, I started tweeting my comedy, I threw together a national tour. I played the guitar. To this day, after the three dots, I still don't understand exactly what happened. But I've never been more fun, been more challenged, and this is important, had more conviction about what I was doing. How could this be true? Well, it's simple. This is such a powerful line. There are few things more liberating in this life than having your worst fear realized. You thought that it was going to work out a certain way. You thought that you were gonna become something, and now you're not. And in that moment, and in that decision, and in that realization, you're gonna be faced with a choice. Do I constantly re reach back and try to change, turn back the clock and reinstate that moment that I was waiting for? Or do you allow yourself for profound reinvention? I remember I was on the phone once with my sister. I was in my house and she asked me a question that, that sent me into like a, a real nervous panic. I was on the phone with her. I don't know why she asked me this question. She, she's an emotional terrorist. And she, she's like, we were talking about what I'm doing. She's like, doesn't like, is this what you planned on doing? Is this what you planned on doing? And I was like, you don't have to ask it so angrily, so aggressively. Like, it was like it was a scary question because I looked around at my life and I was like, I don't know. Is it is this what I planned on doing? Is this, is this what I had dreams of doing? And, and and the first thought when you have that is like all the annoying things that you do day to day, like you know, like setting up you know tables and you know booking buses and making sure that things are arriving on time. You're like, I didn't plan on doing that. I don't know. Like, did I become what I planned on doing? And he ends as follows. And I think this is my answer. <laughs> Way back in the 1940s, there was a very, very funny man named Jack Benny. He was a giant star, easily one of the greatest comedians of his generation. And a much younger man named Johnny Carson wanted very much to be Jack Benny. In some ways he was, but in many ways he wasn't. He emulated Jack Benny, but his own quirks and mannerisms, along with the changing medium, pulled him in a different direction. And yet this failure to completely become his hero made him the funniest person of his generation. David Letterman wanted to be Johnny Carson and was not. And as a result, my generation of comedians wanted to be David Letterman. And none of us are. My peers and I have all missed that mark in a thousand different ways, and this is the part you should listen closely to. But the point is this. It is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy. But if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. I think about these words a lot. Your perceived failure, and the word perceived is key there, can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. There are areas in our life that are not going to go as planned. There are people now who are probably realizing that for the first time in their life. For many people in this room, this is the first time in the history of your life where you have decisions that you have to make and aren't being made for you. You're not in a high school, you're not in an elementary school, and as you go out past the college years and you need to make decisions based on what career you want to have, based on who you want to marry, 
there's going to be a dissonance between what you imagined it would be or even imagining something and what you end up with. And you're like starting to get the memo that I might be one of those people who it doesn't work out for. But there are two answers. Number one, all of us are those people, without exception. Nobody has a sequential life. Nobody's life goes exactly as planned. And everybody has a perceived failure. For some people, their perceived failure is laughable. But for many of us, it's deeply personal. And when we get that memo, the question is, are we going to use it as a catalyst for profound reinvention? Or are we constantly going to be trying to invent that time machine to go back and correct things so we're in a perfect world? And that's really the opportunity that failure presents. I want to end with a source that I think is the most powerful source that I confronted through the entire book. And it's from the Sefer HaChinuch. I know I'm contractually obligated to quote Reb Sadov, but he missed the cut. The Sefer HaChinuch. The Sefer HaChinuch in the mitzvah of Tefillin is talking to his son. And he says that there's a halacha that you have to have very holy thoughts when you wear tefillin. There are certain times where you have to take off your tefillin. And he addresses the fact that there were many years, almost centuries, that Jews stopped wearing tefillin at all. People did not wear tefillin for centuries. One of the misconceptions that they had was the fact that they thought that we're not holy enough to wear tefillin. We're not great enough to wear tefillin. And the Sefer HaChinuch elevates the conversation beyond tefillin and addresses his son very personally. Below came Basi in the second highlight, Ani Im Hakel. That is not what we do in my house. Ki Adati, because I know She'ein Sadik Pa'aretz Asher I know that we're not perfect. The Im Kolzeh but nevertheless, nimneu neisasek the mitzvah the eis ruach elokim tova to labshehu lasos tov. I know nobody's perfect, but we never allow our imperfections to be a mechitza, to be a boundary, to be a stumbling block in our entrance to holiness. Ki miyodeya im ulai yimshach the darko hatova ad eis moso the hamavas pitom tova. Who knows if this is the moment that is going to draw you in closer to holiness? For many of us in this room, the number one impetus to a life striving for perfection is the knowledge that we are not going to reach it. For most people in this room, the morning after, the morning after, and you could fill in the blank because everybody has their own story about what the morning after is the morning after from. For some people, the morning after is the morning after a breakup. For some people, the morning after is a night of a bad decision. For some people, the morning after is a night of anger and frustration at somebody. And you wake up the next morning and you say, who am I to be a great spouse, to be a great employee, to be a great student, to be a great Jew? I should just like throw in the towel. Who am I? How can I show up to, to davening the next morning? 
How can I show up to an, uh, uh, an event, a Shabbaton, a Tish? How, how can I be in that room? I belong under the table like that boy. I, I don't belong there. I'm gross. I'm disgusted. I did something wrong. I failed. And we wear it around like a knapsack filled with all of our regret and shame and embarrassment. And the Chinuch addresses all of those people. The low-key basic idea of Kale. That's not what we do in my house. In my house, when we have a moment, when we have an opportunity to do something holy, we don't allow our perceived hypocrisy to be a boundary, to be a wall around opportunities for perfection. Even if that perfection is unreachable, even if that perfection is not going to last. We give ourselves permission to say, I am a fundamentally good and decent person, and everybody everybody sins in some way, in some direction. So tomorrow morning, I am going to go to davening. Tomorrow morning, I am going to go to class. Tomorrow morning, I am going to go to shir. The Shabbos, I am going to go to the Shabbaton. Because no matter what was in our knapsack, we have to give ourselves permission to take it off, to set it down, and say, even in these failures, it's not a reason to stop going, but if anything, it is a profound catalyst for reinvention. And there is an agog opportunity, a way to lead and grow and thrive, even if failure is inevitable, even if our excitement doesn't last, there is a space and there is a moment for profound reinvention. Thank you all so very much. Product is downstairs. Please buy a copy. Please buy multiple copies. A lot of people coming up to me. It makes a great Shalach Mano speed. So <laughs> give that to everybody. Give that to your whole community. Uh, please go downstairs. And <laughs>